0: Got the job there. It's like this large consultancy, um, and you know you get put on projects, but you get put on the bench as well. Like you go between, you know, being on the bench, being on projects, but being on the bench is um, quite good at times because then I get this. That's my scrimber attack.
1: That was Chris Webster, a teacher turned full stack developer. After enrolling in a premium London bootcamp, Chris recently landed his first role in tech. But was the bootcamp worth all the money? I wanted to speak with Chris about his experience to see how the bootcamp compares to teaching yourself to code online. This way, we'll get bright ideas from the bootcamp without necessarily having to invest the same time and money. This episode is particularly interesting because of Chris's perspective learning to code as a teaching practitioner who also has a master's in education. Apart from learning how Chris got the job, we spoke about the psychology behind effective adult learning, strategies to stay hyper-focused, and the mindset that helped Chris see hard-coding challenges through to find success. Chris, welcome to the show.
0: Funnily enough, when I was younger when I was a teenager when computers in the mid-90s became a thing, <laughs> you know, every household was getting a PC and so on. I did; I was very, very interested in computers at the time. I used to take my uh, computer apart and put it back together. But I'd say my computer is my mum and dad's computer. <laughs> But they used to really like, no, get off the computer because um, they had a modem back then, and um, people couldn't use the phone if people, someone was on the internet. So that kind of um, made me kind of lose interest in computers generally after a while, because you know can't really use them all the time, you know. So, um, but later, so I've always been interested in computers, and later in life, I was like, uh, been in education for quite a while, and um, thinking, oh, I really would fancy a change. And a friend of mine during COVID, we was on a walk, as you do. And he said he was dating a girl who did a boot camp and then got a job within nine weeks. I was like, what? That's crazy. It almost felt like there was a sign to me to say, oh, you know, Chris, you've got a really good opportunity here. You could um, go into a different career and then something that you would generally be interested in. Because, you know, uh, development and working in tech uh, appeals to things like uh, creativity, You your own input, uh, your own personality put into it, as it were. Yeah. And I thought, yeah, it presented a really good chance for me to do something that, you know, I know I'd be passionate about. And very committed to.
1: Were you passionate about teaching at the time? What what were you teaching by the way?
0: I was teaching um Mandarin Chinese actually. Brilliant enough uh, what I lived in China for a few years uh and then I wanted to come back to the UK and as sort an of opportunity to do a PDC in Mandarin Chinese in London. So I did that and uh yeah I was passionate about uh teaching because mainly I was passionate about learning Chinese so I put so much time into learning it and I was like so and when I was teaching I was very like enthusiastic trying to teach it the Children, stuff like that. But I think education as a career, for me personally, I just felt like, you know, the amount of hours you put in to what you get back from it, you know, uh, you're doing it for the kids, as it were, sort of thing. But, you know, life's, life's too short. I was in it for like 15 years and I thought, you know, I really want to try something else because I know I had friends who work in tech and they work life balance is really good and they're getting really good, paid really well as well. And I know the minute is not everything, but uh, I think work life balance is really part of it, really, for me.
1: Yeah. So, Were you doing like teaching in a secondary school, that type of thing, or was it a dedicated teaching centre? Well,
0: I was based at a, a school which would roll out Mandarin state schools in the area. So I was like the regional director for part of the UK as part of like a national initiative. Yeah, we got it into like about 25 schools in the end. And yeah, I was teaching in primary and secondary. And I spoke with some universities as well, so I took it all across the range, which is really good from a like a pedagogical perspective. It was really good because you got you, you see it across the entire range, so you try and work in many different schools as well. Yeah, different ages. You'd um, work in different schools, and then you try different approaches with different kids of different age groups, and you find that things work well for older kids as well as younger kids and vice versa that was quite
1: interesting yeah. i think a little bit later in the interview we can look at the similarities between learning and teaching a natural language versus a programming language i'm kind of curious if there's something there but talk to me a little bit about why you wanted to make the change it sounded like you were quite successful in the role
0: it wasn't an easy decision i mean a lot of um I wouldn't say a lot of people, they were like close family friends and saying, are you sure you want to do this sort of I Because you, know, you have to go start from scratch and build up again. But I knew that by making a change, I felt confident I could make it a success because um, from learning a foreign language like Mandarin Chinese and everything that comes with it, such as like resilience, perseverance, um, if you get out what you put in, that kind of applies to everything really. If like, you, re- you work hard, you persevere, you don't give up, you'll get there in the end. And uh, Coming to tech, I started at the lower salary, but after a year, I got a new job and then I increased my salary and uh, I, know, I know I keep going about salary all the time, but it is you know it's just one. That's just one aspect of it. That's what people are interested
1: in. Well, I like the way I guess your family and friends put it, emphasizing that when you make a career change, is scary because you're starting from the beginning. But it sounds like because you had that experience of teaching yourself and these traits around resiliency and things, you know, you believed in yourself, and you know now you've made a success of it. But I think to your point about salary and stuff like that, like obviously, it matters. And I can only reflect on an interview I did a few months ago with a lady called Jess Gilbert. She was a secondary teacher in the UK, which for international listeners in America maybe that's like high school, so teaching teenagers and things. And even though she got into it because of her passion for, you know, enabling students and sharing information, the the working conditions just really were quite poor, basically in terms of like, you know, work-life balance. Compensation to some extent, like with the cost of living crisis in the UK and everything becoming more expensive. Of course, you want to pay it forward and help bring up the next generation, but that shouldn't come at like a detriment to your own situation, I don't think. So that kind of inched her towards coding where you know there was a bit more of an opportunity to
0: grow in her career i would say i remember listening to it actually and nodding yes yes (laughs) i don't think teachers do get enough respect in the the uk really in the schools because it's a lot of pressure you're working with every single aspect of society almost in a way because you're working with kids of all backgrounds then you've got their parents and then you've got the leadership team and other colleagues in school and then there's you in the classroom with hundreds of kids you have to be responsible for so yeah it can be very you know be a bigger a bit of a burden really i'm I'm just you and then uh you're trying your best but then you know (laughs) the recompense and everything else you get with it like you're saying like yeah it's just not worth it i think maybe for a few years if you've got an itch to teach
1: that walk you did with your friend this uh socially distanced walk is what i'm imagining around the pandemic time you said they did a boot camp and they got a job in nine weeks is that what the promise was with the boot camp when
0: they did it. A- I suppose it's kind of what they market to everybody. And then yeah, it's you to then, you know, get the job at the end. And I think people have that understanding really. But yeah, when you market something like that and then you like it it really pulls you in.
1: Well, talk to me a little bit about that because you have all this experience learning a language. So you have a sense of how to learn something hard to completion. Did you just say, right, I'm doing a bootcamp
0: or did you consider your options at the time? Well, I looked into the bootcamp and I thought, well, I could only do it part-time. So I did it over six months instead of nine weeks because um, I needed a salary, you know, to... You know, payment wages as it were, you know. So they give you resources to say, uh, go on to Code Academy and learn Ruby uh, do a course in that to get kind of an understanding of a program and language and how it works. And then on the course, you do a bit more of a deep dive into it. Yeah, it was definitely a steep learning curve for me. When you're trying to balance a job with learning to code because the bootcamp style is pretty intense to be honest. There's not much time to reflect on what you're learning and things like that. How did you kind of structure that in terms of your days? I think it was Tuesday and Thursday evenings uh, for three hours that you were online doing it with everyone. And on a Saturday, it was a whole day. Also, I believe these are supposed to like watch lectures before and do a little bit of practice before you do the sessions and some weeks i just didn't have time for it so i was just busy with the life and work and stuff like that so yeah
1: so like tuesdays thursdays and saturdays it was synchronous and online like you'd join the calls and do the sessions with people but there was also this expectation that you'd have to like do a little bit of prep before those sessions
0: and you know code academy obviously you do on your own yeah that's right if you wanted to get the most out of it you would need to spend the extra time to uh, recap and review everything so and feeds into the next thing you're going to do. So, I mean, for me personally, I just, I just couldn't. I, I tried my best, but you yeah, know, yeah, it's hard. It's so
1: hard. Like, it's the time issue, sure, but it's also like an energy issue, right? Like doing two jobs, context switching, and all the other you know stuff we have to do in life around family and whatever. Yeah. What was your experience like doing the boot camp overall? You did it part time, first of all, which is interesting. Did you get out of it what you were expecting?
0: Not as much as I hoped. And again, that probably goes back to the lack of time and doing it part time. I just didn't have the time to really go everything. And someone could say to me, oh, if you push yourself hard enough, you could have made time. And I suppose that there is some truth in that. But <laughs> there is always that, you know, oh, I could um, do some coding rather than watch this TV program. But then, you know, rest is just as important because you need to. Refresh your brain, and your brain is still working while you're post-work.
1: What did you think of the curriculum and the support you got as a student? I guess the big appeal of a bootcamp compared to being self-directed is that they give you a path, right? Like, here's the curriculum you're doing, and then you're not totally alone if you get stuck, right? Like, hopefully there's someone you can go to, whether that's a pair, a TA, or a teacher to like help put you on the right track.
0: Yeah, there was lots of support there. There was all these TAs, teaching assistants that they had, and then the lead teacher for the course, and they were. They're really really nice people like a uh, really lovely and i get in touch with a couple of them afterwards as well so this what was really, if you message people they would reply there was like a slack channel you know i'm still part of today which is um a really big network which is really good in terms of the curriculum i think from being a teacher you're always going to have that you know <laughs> sharp eye on how it's structured and stuff and i've been out mandarin it on the curriculum in schools and the only way this school would keep mandarin is to make a sustainable part of the curriculum is so if the results were good and the kids were able to access the content and you know, keep their interest and keep that sense of success going. I felt with the boot camp, well, for me personally, I think it felt like, especially at the beginning, that it was pitched for people who sort of knew how to code already, really. Uh, Whereas when you're a complete beginner, you feel like you're in the deep end of it, you know, like, wow, which a lot of people would say is the best way to learn because you're just throwing into it, which is fair play. I think for me personally, I feel like I need to have like an access point where I know this from being a teacher myself, but I had to learn this over time. It took me a really long time to learn it. And teachers that I trained, I, to, I also shared this with them as well. I said, like, you're best off pitching it at a level where everyone can access the content. Don't just put it at this level and just, you know, find yeah. people and the rest of them can't
1: it sounds like the marketing pitch didn't quite align with the offering in that sense i think it's a common critique of boot camps they're incentivized obviously to make money and get students in the door and so the marketing material can be very like tantalizing you could say like you know get a job in nine weeks sometimes they'll go as far as saying get a really high paid job in as few as nine, 12 weeks whatever it might be and likewise they might want to appeal to complete beginners and assure you that like hey if you've not done any coding. But obviously, once you get there and like you know, you felt perhaps that you would have benefited from a bit of a foundation before getting there, else you're like you know, lagging a little bit, and there's this time pressure as well because you're only in the cohort for a certain amount of time. I can imagine that's a little bit tough.
0: At the end of the day, every company does marketing and they you know, they stretch the truth a bit, I know you know, it's just part of being a company, and being successful. Then again, you could say to them, Well, they haven't stretched your tooth because i did get a job at the end of it so you know yeah. it's, a, it's a weird one i think it's just a process of doing it where it just felt like a lot of pressure because you like you feel like you're lagging behind like all the time you're like you know i've got to keep up you know at some point i was just like oh, whatever you know and um it's interesting when i got to that mindset when i got there when i just thought oh, i'll just just crack on and just see what happens that yeah you know, when you like kind of get into that mindset of not stressing too much just going or oh, whatever just let it go it's just let's just go with it That i actually found that's that through yeah, to find relax a bit more, and then I kind of accepted. Yeah, I'm not going to know everything. It's fine, and um, there's plenty of people on the course who felt the same as me as well. You know, you partner up, you buddy up when you do a challenge, and we both to yeah, I don't know, I don't know what to do, and then we talk together about how we can break it down to the smallest step and see how far we get. Quite often, we wouldn't even finish the challenge, but we'd get like a, do a little bit of it, and then kind of like um share that experience together. So that's quite comforting in a way because you you don't feel like completely alone. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> really that's like, huge. Um,
2: Coming up, how Chris landed a job and then a dream job.
0: Yeah, I'll just get some battery in <laughs> so, ba- there.
2: I doubt it, but what do you mean? But before that, there's a favor we need to ask of you. Hi, I'm Jan, the producer, and I would like to remind you that the best way to support a podcast that you like, like this one, is to tell somebody about it. If you're enjoying the show and if you're learning something from it, share it with someone, be it in person, on Discord, or on social media. And if you're feeling super supportive, you can also leave us a rating or a review in your podcast app of choice. We also read your social media posts and your reviews right here on the show. As long as your Twitter or LinkedIn posts contain the words Scrimba and podcast, we will find them and you'll get a shout out. But for now, we're going back to the interview with Chris. My reflection on what you're saying and boot camps in general is that
1: there is that appeal of the path but also the community, right? Like you're in that Slack channel to this day, for example, but I guess to measure the value of a bootcamp, it's all kind of like relative to the cost, like what you put in, in terms of the cost and what you're hoping to get out of it and stuff like that. Tell me a little bit about how you feel about the investment in retrospect. Do you think it was like the right
0: way to invest that time in and money? Uh, <laughs> I actually found out post bootcamp from, uh, I had a spare room at my house. I rented out for Airbnb and, um, Someone came to stay there and she did the School of Code bootcamp offered by Microsoft, which is free. And I was like, oh, wow. And then she learned like React and things like that through there, which we didn't on our bootcamp, which is very relevant. Like in my job now that I do, I need it's React and Node.js, it's um, the Pern stack, so Postgres, Express. Well, actually, we use something else with an Express, but um, yeah, React and Node. So I was like, wow, if I did a bootcamp with of that, I would have been, I would have put me a bit more forward. So I'd say, from that experience of meeting her, I was like, if I knew I could have done the bootcamp for free, that would have been good.
1: Where does Scrimbo come into this? Because I know you spent a bit of time learning front-end development subjects on Scrimbo.
0: So I became a teaching assistant at the bootcamp school for a short time after. And uh, I heard from another teaching assistant about Scrimbo. He was saying how amazing it was. He'd learned React on there, I was like, oh, I need to learn React because everyone's talking about React. You need to learn it. And part of the bootcamp curriculum, they're post-content. Afterwards was I learned to act, so I was like, "Oh, that's great!" So I went on there. I just started with it. I was like, "Oh wow, this is brilliant! You can actually code in the environment, and you can pause, and then you can go back, all sorts of stuff like that." And I thought, "Oh, this is really good." And then not just that, but also the following lesson that, that followed that, and each one of that but it's just like built very incrementally, it like appeals to the kind of spiraled curriculum pedagogy where you you know you build upon what you've learned from before, and it's layered up rather than it just be like you've thrown in and you just like you lost that sort of thing and that yeah. kind of, I like the way the teachers kind of reassure you as you go along, you know, it's okay. You won't get this right now. Um, you can always go back and that sort of thing. So that kind of reassurance is really important for any student. Um, I know from myself and I was teaching that you, you always have to reassure and give feedback and say, just stick at it. You know, and you can always look back if you're not sure and that sort of thing. So that's good.
1: That's awesome. Yeah. At Scremba, it's very much like an emphasis on the pedagogy, I would say. There is this interactive format where you get hands-on. And generally speaking, if you are in a position where you have to retrieve knowledge, like when we learn something, oftentimes we just input information into our brain, right? We study, we watch, we listen, but that isn't actually how you learn stuff. Like you have to combine that input with like retrieving something from your head And The shorter that loop is, arguably, for example, if you do a little quiz after each module, or if in the case of Scrimba, you actually challenge yourself to follow the instructions and interact with the code, it just creates a nice little feedback loop where you can really say, yes, I understand this. I understand variables. Now it makes sense to move on to if statements. I understand if statements. Now I can quite easily grasp what a switch statement is, for example, you know, like it's all kind of building on. I think for every module at Scrimber, it's like if they introduce a concept that just wasn't in the previous few modules, essentially, like that doesn't happen, generally speaking, because the idea is to kind of build on top of each point, uh, but they'll like call it out and acknowledge it and say, hey, you know, we're going to look at this thing called a promise. I know we haven't looked at promises in JavaScript yet, but don't worry. And I think, you know, from my, my perspective as a student, if I'm watching a course and they mention something and I haven't got a clue what it is, but I don't know their intention is that I don't need to know about it yet. I start panicking. I'm like, wait, wait, I need to pause this going, you know, that's the whole point of a teacher to like, not just exchange information, but almost coach and guide you towards being successful. That in my opinion is like the art of teaching that gets lost with, you know, very well intentioned people on YouTube or Twitter, or even some authors who self publish and stuff. Like I think they miss out on this like pedagogy part that you're describing and it makes such a big difference to like the student outcome in my view.
0: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I think a lot of the time, I notice this in schools and um, different people I've worked with in the past as well. They just want to get through the content as fast as possible, and then they don't consider how the students are feeling or like um, like is that being paramount as well? Because it's their well being, when I think about it as well. They're putting a huge amounts of pressure. They they find it really hard. And I did a master's degree in um, teaching that I did part time before I. Funnily enough, I left teaching, which is kind of weird, but it was was paid for by my school, so that's why I did it. But Also, I was interested in in the topic of cognitive load as well. My dissertation at the end of it was to do with strategies to do with cognitive load, what was actually called load reduction instruction. So you would reduce the load in order to pitch it at a certain level for the children or adults to then be able to make steady progress over time. And then to put it very, very simply, uh, what it came down to, which I know it sounds really, really obvious, but... Is practice. You've just got to practice a lot. And then the teacher has to enable the student to practice as much as they can within that lesson rather uh, than just talk at them for half an hour or 40 minutes, just talking, and talking, and talk Yeah. Or even some of the lectures on bootcamp, but it was an hour long. You just sat there and you're like, Phew. you're trying to code along. You're like, they call it, you know, the tutorial help concept.
1: Yeah, because you're never really understanding the concepts. You're just following along, basically. And if you're like got a sore ass from sitting in a chair for an hour straight and your eyes are sore from just following something, you know, it's not it's boring. Learning should be fun, right? And, you know, apart from being boring, it's tiring, it's draining, right? If someone just talks at you for 60 minutes, especially if you got lost in the first 10 minutes, right? Like if you didn't understand something early on, on which the remainder of the presentation hinges, you can easily like you know switch off, but then you have this like obligation to stay on the Zoom call. Or if you're in a, cl- a physical class, like you're literally captive there. If you hear me getting kind of hyped up about it, is because like that was my whole experience learning stuff at school. But then when I got an opportunity to learn from some really great teachers who know how to engage me, I feel like that kind of unlocked my intelligence a little bit. I was like, oh, I, I thought I was kind of stupid, but actually, they're just kind of bad teachers, like it's not really my fault. Like I can do this thing. But yeah, the idea of cognitive load is interesting. I was wondering as like a former teacher and a current learner, if you had any sort of like learning hacks, you could say, up your sleeve, tactics and things you come to when you're trying a new topic.
0: I would say and this is easy to say and also like to hear as well, I'd say, you know, you'd hear it in just one go and just go, Yeah, and then dismiss it afterwards. Don't move on if you don't really understand what you're doing. That would be the ultimate advice I would give to anyone. Like you you think you've understood it, and you're like, "Yeah, that's fine," but you don't know if you've understood it unless you've tested yourself on that particular thing. If you can really understand what a for loop is doing, even if it's something really simple like incrementing by one, that will really help you then when you move on to the next thing. Because I think the, the temptation can be just copy paste and go on Google, "How do I do a for loop for this thing?" And then you sort of you sort of feel like, "Yeah, sort of understand it." But if you're actually feeling like that about a fundamental concept like a for loop, you're going to be um struggling a bit later. So that was probably the
1: Thing. I love that example of a for loop because you can maybe copy and paste the for loop that counts from 1 to 10 and you're like, okay, I get it. It runs this code in the middle 10 times. And like that's a kind of loose understanding. But then if you can say, ah, oh, okay, we're declaring the counter variable here in this first part, and then we're declaring the condition, and then we're declaring how to increment the original Like, okay, that's an understanding. And then within that, you're like, okay, what does the plus plus mean? Like, why do we do plus plus instead of like plus one? And then you realize that's because plus plus returns and then increments the variable, for example. Or you're like, oh, why do we start from zero instead of one? And then you're like, oh, okay, because that's weird, right? Like, we don't do that. And we can't, you know, because that's how arrays start. They start from an index of zero. So it makes sense, you know, like it it sounds basic at a high level, but there's lots of little things in there that, you know, you might not understand before you move on. But another example is like maybe functions, like you can understand how to declare a function, but I wouldn't rush over and start learning arrow functions until you've got a really strong grasp of like how to declare a sort of traditional function, you could call it. But I guess the question is, like, how do you know when you, because you can go so deep, right? But the whole point is if you're new, you don't know what you don't know. So, how would you kind of decide when you know something well enough to move on? Like, what's your threshold there?
0: I think it's more. Uh, so, to give another example, if you've got a coding challenge or a test given to you to do a problem, it's that initial step of understanding what the problem is that you're solving and really understanding it to its full extent. Like you can break down the wording or anything like that. Um, I used to it it's like a loop is like a much simpler example, but yeah, I reckon it's probably problem-solving steps um, to do with that. Really understand what the problem is, and then think of steps to solve it. But you need to understand what you need to do at each step. And if you don't know what, how to do that thing at that step, then you can research how to do it. And then uh, that how, then you need to understand the how process as well. And then then it's the implementation after that. And I think. That as a whole is essentially what it means to be a coder, I think, really, to be honest. I think there's that book called by George Polya called Steps to Solving a Problem. It's, it's about a silly bit of mathematics, actually. And it, You look at the rest of the book, you think, oh, God. actually, you only need to really look at the first couple of pages, which actually tells you how to solve a problem in steps, understand the problem, know the steps to solve it, then execute a solution. If it didn't work, go back and review the steps of how you would solve the problem and Try again and then just follow that kind of process until eventually you solve the problem but i think one thing that you can fall into the trap of is just keeping them going and going and going trying every uh, method under the sun without really stopping and thinking about how you would solve the problem if if that makes sense
1: yeah no i mean i'm so guilty about myself like just hammering the problem trying to brute force it compared to like if you take a step back and think okay what other steps I need to do here, right? Like, I don't know why that's so hard. Do you find it hard as well, or does it come quite easy to you at this point? Oh, no, I
0: still find it hard. Yeah, absolutely. I think because you can get in your own head about what other people's expectations might be of you and of yourself as well. Like, you think that everyone wants you to finish this problem in within a, a week or a day or something like that, but actually, they don't necessarily think that at all. And then the bizarre thing is, is that if you do take your time to really think about a solution to the problem you will solve it faster and that's the weird one
1: yeah you're so right like it's that brute force often comes from like this will sound like a big word for it but it's a kind of panic i think where like i don't know if you ever seen like a clip of a bank robber trying to leave when the alarm's going and they're pulling a push door and they just keep pulling it and keep trying the same thing over and over again they're just panicking it's not so extreme obviously but it has to do with like the pressure you feel and it could be intrinsic like oh i should really know the answer to this and so you keep brute forcing it or it could be extrinsic which is like oh everyone else will think i should be able to solve this in one fell swoop i shouldn't have to but you're so right like counterintuitively you slow down to speed up
0: yeah yeah It's, it's so bizarre like and it's something that i really had to get used to because when i was in teaching i was in it for many years so like it did become a bit more second nature to you because um Another book out, I can recommend as well is a uh, Think Fast and Slow by um, Daniel Kahneman. In your brain, you've got two things called a System One and System Two. And System One is your automatic uh, thinking. You know, when you walk down the street, you don't think about what you're doing when you're walking. It's just an automatic sort of thing. And in a way, when you've developed skills over your life, they do become more second nature. Like a chess, he uses the example of a chess master could walk on a street and go three moves checkmate for white or something like that. And then it was correct because he just knew instantly like that. So I'd been in teaching for a long time. It did, it did eventually come like that and not in every way, but in a lot of ways it did. So they'd add a lot more headspace there to like, sort of, I could just keep going. So you'd like on a treadmill, just keep going and keep going and keep going. But um, what I really embrace and I enjoy about coding's career is that you, no matter what you, do you have to take a break because if you don't take a break just, your head's not really clear then you're not going to be in the right mindset to approach a problem and you know that if you don't have a clear head that you're likely it's going to take you a lot longer to solve the problem and I think people within the company or other coders know that's also really important as well. Um, so they kind of accept and embrace that as well. So I think that's a really beautiful thing about coding as a career and working as a developer as well, is, is that aspect of it.
1: It's a weird one because I think everyone listening and, and yourself, Chris, you know, can identify with this feeling of you're stuck on a coding problem. You take a shower, you wake up the next morning, you go for what you come back and you're like, why was I stuck on this? And like, it's, you know, that's the most quintessential evidence for like it it works. I sometimes think about intellectual work as like draining a battery, you know, like you're outputting a lot, you're focusing a lot and yeah, you can recharge with rest, right? Like sleep and stuff. But I also think you can recharge with like inspiration and insights and ideas. So like sometimes just like reading Hacker News or Reddit or listening to a podcast on a walk. I don't know. It's the kind of thing that makes you come to the problem again and you're like a bit more intelligent as a result or something. Like you can Solve it now, or as you couldn't before.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Well, referring to that book again, the uh, the system won't be the automatic thinking. The system two is the part of your brain that's you know doing the work to really solve the problem, and then you just need to give that system two a rest to then recharge. And then w- once you've had that, like say, you get rid of the podcast on the walk, and you've just cleared your head a bit. I mean, for me, i are playing my guitar as um, you've seen in the background of my video. Yeah, that clears my head, and then yeah, like you say, or you have a shower, and you just like that system two has been given a rest. Yeah. You know working part of your brain that you're doing the problem solving with and you come back and you're refreshed again i think it's just doesn't come naturally to people to think that way i think so even for me i thought oh i can just keep going it doesn't matter i'll get there in the end but yeah taking that moment to have a break is important yeah
1: there's like a stigma i guess is the right word for it there some people will say like oh you're not working hard enough or like oh you just need to keep you know hammering the problem sort of thing and i guess the reason i call it a stigma is because if i think back to five years when we were all the coders working in offices if you were like on the sofa chilling out, or like not at your desk kind of thing, nobody would come to you and say, "Hey, work harder." You know, nobody would like call you lazy. But I, I do think there was a stigma there. Like people would be like, mm, "Like that's not a real hard worker, right there?" You know, and like as we just identified, like sometimes that is efficient working as opposed to like grinding or grazing, right? Like you're being considerate and intentional uh, with your time and effort. Maybe one of the perks of working from home is that like we get that freedom to like, I do like a 25 minute Pomodoro timer. And then I spend five minutes like just tidying a little bit. And like, that's one way I approach my days. And like, yeah, I just do that on repeat for a few times. And like, I get a clear head. And when I'm finished with work, I've got a nice, like fresh apartment. You couldn't really have done that back in the RTO or office days because you'd really sort of be expected to be at your desk all the time. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Absolutely. I think the um, change of the hybrid working so now you're all working from home. I do a hybrid now. I think that is so good for like your well-being and just keeping your mind of pressure, like you say. Uh, I used a Pomodoro timer when I was um, using Scrimber, actually, to learn oh, how to because cool. Yeah. Um, you do so many and then you know you think oh i need a break when am i going to have this break i don't know and then that kind of you got that time and you're like oh yeah i can have a break now because i've set it for 25 minutes and i'll a break again yeah it's uh probably all the time is yeah i can't recommend them enough as well
1: i was talking to ali Spitzel last year who i was a teacher at a boot camp for a period she's a very good teacher and she made this point about the difference between if i remember well like the active states of learning like when you're reading for example I and mean, then there's like a more passive state called the diffused state, which I need to be careful not to like misrepresent, as if I know anything about neuroscience. But the idea is that equivalence of a dust settling, right? Like you take a bit of distance, the dust settles. It m- might have something to do with like neural pathways and stuff forming in your head, and like those paths can only get formed when you take a little rest. Uh, so just like one more example in in favor all of this. The last question I wanted to ask you about teaching and pedagogy. I did just wonder in your experience if you've ever come across this idea of like the psychological state of flow or like being in the zone. And the reason I am inspired to ask this question is around the Pomodoro technique, because I find the Pomodoro technique quite interesting when you're like doing a sloggish kind of task, Uh, like you're maybe reading a kind of tough book or you're doing a course that you just really want to finish. But what I find sometimes with coding, especially, is that after 25 minutes, I'm getting in the zone. Like if I take a break and I, you know, I lose my momentum essentially, I lose that state of flow.
0: And I just wondered if you had a perspective on it with your experience. You make a great point there. I'd do the same thing actually. If depends on the task. So yeah, if it's a course, like you say, that. Pomodoro time is really good for that. But yeah, when, um, I found when it was a task like if I've, um, given a project to do, like on the Scrimba but of course, um, like the tenses game, I remember doing that and, um, I was really getting in a, in a state of flow going, oh, I'm actually quite enjoying this. And I just ignored the Pomodoro time. It would be I at mean, I'll just turn it off and just carry on and then, uh, just keep going. And then I think that's like the bread and butter of it all, really. Like all the learning that you've done is really then starting to really come into effect. And yeah, that state of flow, I think is really important. And it was touched upon in my PPC as well about, if um, you can get students into a state of flow and you, if you can observe that in the room, don't move forward with your lesson, just let them carry on. And then they, they finally they start to learn more by themselves as well. And that kind yeah. of uh, release of uh, independent, you know, being an autonomous learner will start to kick in. And that's when you really feel like you're progressing, I think. Adaptive to the situation is very much a part of it, isn't it? You know, the morning person principle, like, oh, you're a morning person or you're a night owl. I'm definitely a morning person, so any, like, heavy work that requires a lot of use of the brain, I'd do in the morning. I'd schedule my day where, like, okay, I'll do, like, course learning in the morning. In the afternoon, I'll do a project because that way I'll just just keep going. I can put music on as well, and I'll just, like, when I'm really able to concentrate, I can't really listen to music at the same time. But it's something where I feel like I'm just going in the flow. I don't mind having it on. It actually keeps me going for longer, so that's quite good, actually.
1: I think we could stay on the subject for quite a bit longer but I want to make sure that we covered the part of your story, which is around getting your first role. I know that you actually have done two roles technically, but maybe talk to us a little bit about how you went from feeling like you were ready. You could say like you'd learned enough that you were ready to start opening yourself up to opportunities. Like what was your kind of strategy to find a job and? How did things play out in the
0: end? Yeah. So uh, big credit to the bootcamp because at the end I did get a job because they, through their networking channels, they had, um, like a recruitment event done online or at the physical location. And it was through that, that I got my first job. The job was then given through a agency, who then was a kind of like the middleman between you and the, the company. It was an apprenticeship agency. Yeah, introduced you to them as like a kind of an apprentice in a way. So then got the job there. It was like a large consultancy um, and, you know, you get put on projects, but you get put on the bench as well. Like you go between, you know, being on the bench, being on projects, but being on the bench was um, quite good at times because then I could just, that's my Scrimba type.
1: Oh, nice. So this was the company called Infosys that you joined uh, in June 2022, I think.
0: Yeah. So while you had things to do when you're on the bench, because they give you products to do, they get you to go into different groups. So I went into a React group, I went into an AI group, coordinated with the different people remotely, because they were every- everywhere, really, you know, where you would have extra time in the day to focus on, Things so, yeah, I just made sure I did my screen with time and that was really helpful.
1: Infosys, I'm getting the vibe that it's like an agency where uh, customers come to them and then they will code things for them. And you know, if you were coding something for a customer, you were in the game, but there were occasionally periods where there wasn't work, so you would have some downtime between projects to like continue leveling up. Yeah, exactly. I can't tell if that's really great or like really not so great because I mean, you want to be engaged all the time, I feel like, but as a newer developer and you know, you were still it sounds like after the boot camp, there are a few gaps in your knowledge maybe like it might have actually been the perfect thing for you i'm not i'm not sure how did you find the experience overall was it as fulfilling as you wanted it to be
0: yeah it's a bit of a two-sided coin really to be honest because yeah it did give me you know time to then brush up on my coding skills as well after boot camp because you know it was very full-on for me and uh so outside of the boot camp hours, I couldn't really dedicate much more time to, you know, reflect on what we were learning and so on. So it was like, oh, it's a great opportunity. I could um, really apply myself. And then when I'm on projects, I'll be in a much stronger position as well. But at the same time in my current role, which uh, I love, by the way, is brilliant there. It's like you are a friend in the deep end of it again, but you're learning a lot of very valuable skills that you know is useful because you're seeing the output directly in the application, whereas the emphasis is more like you're... A very very small cog in the wheel yeah. which is fine because you lose the company and you know you've got to kind of earn your worth as it were or earn a reputation to so then be given more responsibility which is their strategy it's absolutely fine you don't really have much input in how things work or change you'll just like just a little small role whereas in the current company you play quite a significant role in developing applications. application so that's really rewarding and i've learned a lot actually definitely
1: That's awesome. Tell me if I'm wrong, but I think you described your current role as like your dream job on on the announcement post you shared in the community. What happened there? Like, this is a really interesting subject to me. Like, you know, you're in this role. It's good enough, you could say. And like, you've got opportunities and you are learning. Like, it all sounds very positive overall. But you obviously made a change at some point. So, like, how did that change come about exactly to this new role?
0: Yeah, well, I felt like I'd come to a point where I'd um, made my LinkedIn pretty solid enough, as you know, you follow an a device that you're you given. You've go, got the LinkedIn sorted out, got my CV sorted out. I've been at Infosys for about a year and a half, probably a bit longer, a little bit shorter, I'm not sure. Uh, and I thought, um, you know what, you know, as the people I know are getting jobs elsewhere, a bit closer to home or whatever, because I live in reading so i thought well, if i could get a job in reading that would be really good because it's a bit closer because like i could get the hybrid scenario that i was preferring. whereas um the office in london was in canary walk is quite far away uh, so it's all sorts of factors is why i wanted to move but one of them was just proximity really and just having a bit more of a you know uh, i'm not from reading originally i'm from like nottingham uh, so i don't really know that many people think if you work somewhere you can get to know people and then get a bit of a sort of social group going it's uh, yeah, a dream job in terms of the co- company culture and the uh the people that are really nice like the, the leadership team are really, really good people and yeah they make like at the christmas party they put in so much effort to make it like really fun and just really enjoyable for everybody in there like we had pancake day last week and they had like this whole pancake thing going on it was like wow i've never been anywhere that's done anything like this <laughs> everyone went in there because it's actually a co-space so there's like loads of different companies in the building they all come together in this kitchen it was really cool yeah it was it was fun i'm
1: starting to think the biggest takeaway from this episode for someone will be that in the uk we have a day dedicated to celebrating uh, pancake <laughs> day i think it's a, U- a shrove tuesday is a uk uh,
0: holiday i think yeah yeah someone asked me because my co workers is from hong kong he was like why do you do pancake day and i was like i don't know but it's, it's shrove tuesday and we do always do it on that day and it's like the day before lent starts or something that's apparently right. we do it. People give up things for Lent and then you can do a day where you can just like eat loads of like sweet stuff.
1: But tell me quickly, how did the new opportunity come to you? Like, did you apply for it and go seeking it or you did mention LinkedIn? So now I'm wondering if the opportunity was
0: inbound. Yes, from LinkedIn it was. Yeah, there's loads of recruiters on there and they're looking for people to help get jobs because, you know, it's, they get commission for it. So I think I did my LinkedIn, uh, made it as good as I could, following all audio, the audio advice. So I also did the LinkedIn in skill assessments as well and i think that might be what is the key to getting them to find you Uh, because when i did it i got like so many recruiters contacting me oh Um, so
1: you you turned on the like open for work thing and you did the skill assessments and you noticed the correlation between doing that and more recruiters reaching out to you
0: yeah and also making sure that when you do your skills in linkedin that you align them with the job that you're in and then you've also done a linkedin skill assessment you get some sort of tick or something on it yeah i did i did notice a big difference when i did that but actually this current job was done because i was looking on uh newsfeed on the home page and yeah. then there's a guy on there saying oh, i was a job in reading and then i actually just contacted him i just like went to him oh please you know give me a chance that sort of thing and through him i got the job for him so no way yeah.
1: so yeah you did the linkedin stuff but you could attribute the new job to networking essentially i would say
0: yeah i'd say so yeah uh, enthusiasm's the biggest one like be really enthusiastic and um, I know people say the fake a team maker thing like (laughs) there's a sort of element of that but you do have to show this real passion enthusiasm to people and that's what really grabs their attention and then makes you stand out.
1: Can I ask you what you wrote in that LinkedIn message to the person talking about the role in reading
0: have a look actually if you want
1: yeah that'd be great by the way there's a uh, one great sign of it like people sometimes wonder how well did the interview go and um the thing i always tell them is like did the interview finish on time or did you continue talking like after the scheduled time because if you went over time that probably means like it was a mutually really great conversation i think in this interview even though it's not a job interview granted like because we got so excited about all the teaching topics <laughs> we've like <laughs> run a little bit over time yeah
0: well we're an idea interview with the company and yeah, we went over time we started talking talking about he said oh what did you do for a level because like, oh, uh, they were wondering about my history of course with them um, coding and stuff and i said oh i actually did it philosophy english language and history and then um, the ceo said oh i did philosophy i sat next to hayley atwell at school <laughs> you know the actress from uh, marvel and i was like oh wow and she goes oh yeah she was this is pretty back then if she is now the i was like all right okay that <laughs> <laughs> was quite funny uh and yeah we it's, it's funny because it's definitely to be coding, right? You're just sort of chatting and then you've got something in common. So uh, yeah, the message that recruiter sent was, um, I said, I was wondering if you were happy to offer some advice on how I can en- enhance my chances of being shortlisted. I usually don't hear back if I use recruitment websites. So I would love to hear from you, etc. that sort of thing.
1: Mm, that's a good angle. Yeah. Like asking a question.
0: I like that. Yeah. Seems to work. And uh, yeah, I'll just get some badgering in basically. <laughs> so, ba- badgering? And,
1: uh, I doubt it. what do you mean?
0: He didn't reply to that one, so I sent him another one and um, said I'd be keen on this role he's posted. And then he got back to me again, so uh, yeah, I sort of badgered him once.
1: I pick on the language a little bit because, like, badgering sounds like um, being a nuisance or something, which nobody wants to be. Yeah. But, like, you're persistent, right? Like, maybe that's a, yeah. a better way to put it because I don't think you did anything remotely irksome uh, or anything. It's just like that, that recruiters have a lot of messages. They get missed. If you pop up, you've got another chance of them seeing it again. Like, it
0: sounds totally legit to me. No, you were right to um, focus on that word a bit more. I just sort of yeah, meant it in a self-deprecating sort of
1: way. Yeah, <laughs> fair enough. Oh, I, yeah. As a Brit, I totally get that. All right, Chris. Well, thank you so much for coming on and telling us more about your story. I've certainly learned a lot and had fun sort of vibing about uh, pedagogy and teaching and stuff like that. But I just think there's so many takeaways, right? Like your story in itself, tips on teaching. Um, but I'm also really glad we stumbled into that last little anecdote you mentioned about you know having a enthusiasm and more of a personal conversation i think a lot of people go to job interviews and they're like you know they, they're here they put their back straight they you know they're ready to just answer questions like it's an interrogation which i get like it's scary but at the same time if you can ease into it and, and show a bit of personality and find the connection you know your offer won't hinge on that you need to be good at the role obviously but i think it will grease the wheels and help you like stand out among other candidates so i really appreciate you sharing that candid linkedin message because uh, i think it's uh, something people need to
0: Yeah, thanks so much i really enjoyed it it's been really good fun alex and uh yeah thank you so much for inviting me on
2: that was the Scrimba podcast episode 149 thanks for listening and if you made it this far please subscribe you can find us wherever you listen to podcasts the show is hosted by alex booker i've been jan the producer you can find both of our twitter handles in the show notes as well as the ways to connect with chris keep coding and we'll see you next time